Good morning, everyone, and welcome to uh, today's Flint briefing call, looking at yesterday's autumn statement, which was an opportunity possibly for the government to regain the political initiative ahead of what we expect to be an election year next year. I'm Kieran Horwich, one of the partners here at Flint. I'm joined today by my colleague, specialist partner, Andy King, a former fiscal expert on the OBR's Budget Responsibility Committee, specialist partner, Giles Wilkes, former advisor to Business Secretary Vince Cable and Prime Minister Theresa May. Um, first time for Director James Hedgeland, former advisor to Sajid Javid during his time as Chancellor and in other departments. Uh, and then finally, another James, Director James Kilmartin, uh, who was a former advisor to Labour's Shadow Cabinet. Just a couple of months ago, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, insisted that it would be economically impossible to deliver tax cuts in the near term. Yet yesterday's autumn statement offered some of the biggest tax cuts for years. So today we'll think about what's changed, uh, what the impact uh, this will have on the economy going forward and what this means for the fiscal landscape after the election. We will look at whether the economy really is back on track the political implications for both the Conservatives and Labour. Um, and of course, we will always talk about what this all means from a business perspective. As usual, the last and we won't take any questions during the call. If there is anything that you would like to pick up afterwards, please do get in touch. Um, so Andy, let, let me start with you. Um, as I said just before, the Chancellor billed this as a statement to reflect that the economy is, is back on track. Um, is that really the full story? And um, was that reflected in the fiscal outlook as well? Um, thanks, Kieran. Um, well, there wasn't much consensus yesterday on whether the economy really is back on track or not. Uh, the Chancellor certainly claimed as much. And top of his list of reasons to be cheerful is that inflation has fallen to less than half its peak from a year ago. So the first of the Prime Minister's five pledges has been met. But of course, that doesn't mean prices are coming down. They're simply not rising as fast. And real wages today are still lower than they were two years ago. And back on track certainly isn't the message you'd take from the OBR's new forecasts. They've downgraded economic growth in each of the next three years, revised unemployment up, they expect inflation to be more stubborn, and interest rates to stay higher for longer. So the track we're on for them is uh, quite gloomy. Even so, the OBR are actually more optimistic than many forecasters. There certainly wouldn't be any fiscal headroom if the Bank of England provided the Chancellor's forecasts. And the OBR do reckon the Chancellor's growth measures will support the economy, if only modestly. The fiscal story is interesting. Higher inflation, particularly higher wage inflation, has boosted tax revenues by more than it's raised public spending. So the fiscal outlook has improved since March. That said, the OBR were at pains to point out how higher inflation had also delivered a big squeeze in the real value of departmental spending, storing up problems for the future. All in all, the Chancellor was left with £24 billion more headroom against his debt target than he had in March. And he used most of that on tax cuts, including the two big ones, making full expensing for business investment permanent and cutting national insurance rates for both employees and the self-employed. So it was another big fiscal giveaway. Uh, though he managed to keep 13 billion pounds of fiscal headroom, 
which is small by historical standards, but not negligible. But, and this is a big but, he did nothing to put public services on a more sustainable track. The fiscal windfall from inflation was essentially given back in tax cuts, while public services has been left to cope with smaller real terms budgets. And frankly, they don't seem to be coping well. The NHS waiting list is heading towards 8 million rather than falling, a prime ministerial pledge that won't be met. School buildings are crumbling, court backlogs are at record highs, and prisons are full. The OBR's reading of history is that these spending numbers might be 30 to 40 billion pounds a year higher when the time comes to set budgets for each department. And with no detailed plans beyond April 2025, something is going to have to give quite soon after the election, regardless of who wins. So there's an interesting gamble here that people's liking for tax cuts is going to outweigh their dislike for the overstretched and underperforming public services. So back to you. Thanks very much, Andy. Um, and so after last year's effort, which was designed to contain crisis, Jeremy Hunt, he clearly wanted this statement to be themed around something more positive, uh, hence, hence the growth theme. Um, he claimed to be unveiling 110 measures aimed at growth. Giles, I'm going to come to you. I'm, I'm not sure you can be expected to rattle off all of them. Um, but what were your headline takeaways on the growth package and how business should feel about that? Uh, thanks, Kieran. Uh, to answer your second question first, I think business should feel pretty positive. There were numerous kites flown ahead of the autumn statement, actually a lot more than we normally get. And most of them seem to suggest Hunt was under real pressure to produce crowd-pleasing tax giveaways that would have in fact done little for the business environment. I'm thinking of inheritance tax cuts in particular. But in the end, it looked like the chance to save what firepower he thought he had for measures that would most certainly raise productivity in the economy. For that, he does deserve praise, and he has got the approval of the Office for Budget Responsibility, which concluded that he raised the size of the economy as a result by a princely 0.3 percentage points, which is actually quite a lot, £7 billion or so. So how can you summarise all those measures? Well, I really cannot recall a budget, let alone an autumn statement, where the policy decisions table goes on for five full pages. But the basic idea behind them is simple. Hunt redoubled his approach from the spring with a big focus on investment and on work. These are two weaknesses of the UK economy, which has lagged on business investment for decades and has more recently stumbled in terms of keeping the workforce growing. Um, so on investment, as Andy mentioned, he rendered permanent that temporary full expensing of capital that he unveiled in the spring. And as he was relentlessly lobbied to ever since March, this really does deserve real acclaim. It would have taken much longer than this call allows to detail all the infuriating twists and turns that the UK capital allowance regime has gone through over the decades. As, at a final year cost of £10 billion, Hunt has placed all his chips, financially speaking, on a measure that most members of the public won't even recognise, but business will love. Um, but alongside the planned changes to regulatory settlements, the Treasury now is able to claim that it thinks investment will rise by £20 billion in 10 years, uh, at the end of the 10-year horizon, I should emphasise, which is a pretty hefty amount. I won't pause for long over many of the smaller investment things. There's a kind of sprinkling of cash over free ports and investment zones and their ilk, except to say that Last Friday, we learned about long-term settlements for manufacturing, which are also a pretty big deal. And I'm speaking as a former special advisor for industrial strategy who used to long for a little certainty and commitment from the Treasury. They've provided it. 
the labour supply stuff, which comprises comprise of two big measures. That's the other really big plank. First, a suite of national insurance cuts that Andy referred to earlier for employees and the self-employed, which will raise the effective labour supply by you know, an appreciable amount, maybe 100,000 people. This element also puts money into voters' pockets. And he's brought it um, earlier to January so that it can bring bring the, that money into voters' pockets in time for an election. Then there are carrots and sticks in the welfare-to-work system, uh, from how the work capability assessment operates to further funding the talking therapies and other kind of restart schemes to get people back into work. A measurable boost in the labour force is the overall result, which is what the economy could need right now with wage settlements quite tight. So in summary, while I personally would not have cut taxes at all, given the strains public services are under and the illusory nature of the fiscal room he claims to be spending, Hunt has chosen pretty good tax measures, having decided to do that. It's not a revolution, but we've had enough of revolutionary governments for now, I think. Labour will probably keep with this approach, which is also good news for business that needs long term certainty. Back to you. Thanks very much, Giles, and uh, a much more positive picture than was painted during the budget earlier in the year. Um, even even you've admitted that. Um, so, James Hedgeland, uh, can I come to you? Because this then leads us into a sort of first look at the, the political backdrop. What does this tell us, if anything, about the Conservative Party's political strategy? And then particularly thinking for the election, which will probably be next year. Thanks, Kieran. Um, I think that's absolutely right in terms of the positive picture. And I think that broad positivity that we got alongside the specifics of the policy was, um, as you'd expect at this point in the electoral cycle, in large part a function of the politics, and really more so than the actually economic, particularly when you look at the forecasts. Just going back a couple of months, in gestation it took the Treasury a long time to work out what the shape and ambition of this statement would be. And, and it's fundamentally the political factors that pushed it uh, to what we saw delivered yesterday. That politics wasn't just about the election. In fact, I think the immediate political backdrop the Conservative leadership uh, and Hun himself has faced uh, was probably the more important determinant um, of what this was. Despite numerous attempts to reset and grab the agenda, the Conservative Party polling has remained in the doldrums and they've had a difficult few weeks with a thin King speech, the fallout from Braverman sacking and the Supreme Court decision on Rwanda. And this has really put the pressure on from the right of the party. Now, of course, the sort of the wilder talk of less of no confidence and the significance of that can be overstated. But there's no doubt the pressure was felt in number 10. And, and the Chancellor Hunt has also felt under pressure too. Uh, while the timing of the reshuffle provided him with protection, uh, the number 10 briefing to the press we've seen over the past month has left him in no doubt that his position is not necessarily secure. And uh, this is a feeling I really remember well from having been in the Treasury in the time of Cummings. Um, with likely election loss coming for Hunt either way, legacy really does have to be high up on his mind. And on those kind of broad Tory internal management terms, I think it's hard to argue the autumn statement was anything other than a broad success. It gave the right the personal and business tax cuts they wanted. And of course, they want more and they're already asking for more in the press. But at a time of acute pressure, for now, they have undoubtedly been thrown a bone. The other big political thing it had none was, of course, the general election. And tax giveaways are an important part of that and, and something we will see more of uh, in a future budget uh, and manifesto, with some notable ones held back from the announcements that we saw yesterday. 
But putting the crowd-pleasing fiscal strategy to one side, there are also attempts at dividing lines. And in policy, we saw that most obviously with Osborne-style go at dividing line on welfare. Alongside measures to boost labour force participation, which is just just as all conventional good policy making, uh, there was also some tough conditionality and in advance of the statement, some tough briefing around it. I think it was also notable to have the Chancellor making the point explicitly on immigration as a difference with Labour in his speech. This is another key avenue for a traditional Tory dividing lines with Labour. In Whitehall policy debates, this is an area conventionally a Chancellor doesn't do anything but try and liberalise. I think with data out this morning, a really interesting policy question as the election comes nearer is what the government does on regular migration with efforts under consideration to clamp down on that with, with obvious supply side impacts on the economy. Now, that's all conventional Tory election strategy, but not everything in the statement was quite so playbook. It was more forward-leaning than you might expect in giveaways, rather than saving lots of fiscal firepower for the budget. And after a thin Queen's speech, some have taken this as an indication that a May election is increasingly being favoured. But I think whether or not you think the government is likely to bring forward an election from the current autumn central planning assumption to May, I don't think they are. They still have a budget as a last fiscal event of the parliament. Of course, for the election, they'll want to run a tight fiscal line that meets their fiscal targets, but doesn't leave a lot in the way of headroom for Labour to spend as ready cash in their manifesto. But Hunt is storing up some risks by being so forward-leaning now. Because of the politics, what could have been a statement about a chancellor with a steady hand on the tiller building up a war chest for the future, or in other words, the campaign, as the job is not yet done on inflation and there remain fiscal risks ahead. Instead, he has set up something of a high wire act to traverse uh, towards the budget and the short campaign. Um, and, and with that risk as a final thought, I'll hand back to you, Kieran. Thanks very much, James. So let's let's pick up on that a bit more. And and Andy, come back to you. Um, given that it's been a sort of generous autumn statement, as as we've talked about already, um, as a result of sort of better than expected revenues, to, to James's point about looking forward to this final moment before the election, what room will Hunt or a future chancellor have for the budget? Well, that's an interesting one because, you know, really it's a coin toss as to whether the fiscal news over the next few months will go in his favour or not. Um, relative to what most thought just a month or so ago, he's brought forward £20 billion worth of tax-cutting announcements that we might not have expected until March. And uh, if we set aside the post-election elephant in the room of those squeezed public service budgets, he's left himself a historically small £13 billion of headroom against debt falling in five years' time. So that doesn't leave much room for announcing further tax cuts in the spring. Uh, a penny off income tax costs about £6 billion a year. And he's left the annual fuel duty freeze until March too. So presumably he'll need to find money for that before he moves on to anything that the public haven't already banked. And more importantly, it doesn't leave him much room to absorb any fiscal bad news. And it really doesn't take much to move the forecast for headroom against three trillion pounds of public debt by a few billion pounds. So I suspect they'll be hoping that the run of better than expected fiscal news and favourable forecast revisions will ride to their rescue one last time and let them use a, a forecast windfall for popular measures. 
But no doubt they'll also be worrying that the economy might be slowing a little faster than the OBRs allowed for. That next year might be more of a, a Bank of England forecast year than an OBR forecast year. And that they'll actually be faced with a hole to fill in March rather than space for one final pre-election giveaway. Thanks very much, Andy. So, so Giles, coming back to you, against all of the, the, the context of this discussion um, and, and the giveaways and, and the risks that there are going forward, what what's the opportunity for business ahead of that spring budget? Um, and what do you think that means for the way business should think about engagement? Yes. Um, well, as I said earlier, there is a daunting quantity of government material to engage with in the months ahead. I mean, policy documents running through everything from the smarter regulation of technology and a discussion of the oil and gas fiscal regime to a quantum strategy long-term missions and the uh, the monetary policy remit. So Hunt's speech even included more, such as a half a billion pound commitment to innovation centres intended to create an AI powerhouse, stuff we're still investigating. Whatever the PM's instincts from his speech on Monday, where he came out against industrial strategy, this is an industrial strategy government in its acts. And the key thing about modern industrial strategies is that they are partnerships. They're built on engagement and mutual commitments and long-term policy making that hopefully spans the parliamentary cycle. So yes, it's a delicate moment right now talking to a government while, let's face it, keeping an eye on what the opposition is up to. But the truth is, however, that Hunt, Reeves, Starmer and Sunak are really not that far apart in terms of the policies they'd be pushing. Their differing rhetoric, rhetoric just reflects a different preference for what they'd like to draw attention to. So if we conclude that Johnson's unrepeatable words about business represent the nadir, I believe that the next few months might approach more of a zenith for the value of engagement with government about policy. This government has explicitly recognised the importance of this. Hunt even briefly discussing the Harrington Review, which for those sort of aficionados out there, um, it was a review about how to improve foreign direct investment, which has been flagging a bit, and the importance of having a good concierge and the value of the office for investment. The full expensing of capital, which we've talked about repeatedly on this call, is arguably the clearest example I can think of as where business spoke really clearly and the government listened. So for engagement, for big political calls like that, being in communication with the centre has really, really proven its worth. But in my view, the moment for those kind of big calls is now past. I don't expect business to get that lucky again in the short run. So for the microeconomic sectoral stuff that's still to be worked through, the key point for me remains the sheer quantity of policy measures, that dizzying list of accompanying documents. This is going to be in large part an official-led process to turn that into action, particularly if you're hoping that your policy interest is one that's going to span the election. So try to get to know who is doing the thinking at an official level in the next six months. While the politicos are around plotting dividing lines, officials have the job of delivery and we can help. Back to you. Thanks very much, Giles, and the very sort of helpful overviews and insights. Um, now, we've focused very much so far on, on the government and the Conservative perspective. Um, but James Kilmartin, before we wrap up, I just wanted to turn to you uh, to try and get a Labour perspective. And so can you talk us a bit through what this actually means for Labour and how it's going to affect uh, the Labour Party's political and policy thinking leading into the next election? Sure. Thanks, Kieran. Um, the short answer, I think, is actually not very much, at least not before the election. I say that for three reasons. First, 
I think Labour's election strategy is basically settled. It has survived all the various shifts in the Conservative strategy in the last few months. And in my view, nothing in yesterday's autumn statement is likely to change that. So I think we can continue to expect a cautious, safety-first strategy from Labour, which relies to some extent on a small number of symbolic uh, but relatively modest policy pledges, and to a greater extent, perhaps, a strong sense of disillusionment with the current administration. Second, the tax cuts that were announced yesterday have garnered decent press coverage, at least in the right-leaning papers. But it's much more difficult to see them generating a feel-good factor um, before the election, which yields significant political benefits for the government. If you look back in the run-up to the 2015 election, falling oil prices and real wage growth almost went unnoticed, but they certainly helped create the conditions for the Conservatives' victory. And what we learned yesterday uh, was that real wages are set to fall this year, are almost flat next year. And when you add to that the increasing tax burden, even after the cuts to national insurance and the fact that inflation and interest rates are set to be higher for longer, I think Labour will hope that the time for a change argument is still their trump card. Thirdly, though, I think the real challenge that the autumn statement presents for Labour is less in the pre-election period and more about what they would do if they win and find themselves in power. Before the election, even though basically everybody understands that the government spending plans for future years are close to a fiction, it's almost impossible politically for Labour to depart from them. Doing that would open Labour to the charge that it would lead to more borrowing or higher taxes, both of which Labour has been determinedly trying to shut down as potential vulnerabilities. Now, that position might just about get Labour through an election campaign. But afterwards, if Labour is in power, it will find it almost impossible to live within those spending envelopes, at least without damaging public services, which many of its voters, of course, will expect to see improvements in and want those improvements quickly. So I think that means whatever pre-election assurances Labour gives now, further tax rises afterwards are almost... Ah, I think that we have possibly had uh, an IT situation and slightly lost James, but I think he was wrapping up um, his his answers uh, and talking about the the potential for future uh, tax rises under a Labour government. Um, so with that, I will bring this call to a close. I'd like to thank everybody who joined uh, today, Andy, Giles, James and James, as well as everyone who uh, was on the call to listen. As I said at the top, we're here to answer any questions that you might have. So please do get in touch. Um, and I'd also like to make a very brief small plug for our upcoming AI UK policy landscape webinar. Um, the first interactive webinar that Flint is hosting, which will take place on the 11th of December with Josh Simons. Um, Josh is an AI expert and director of Labour together. So that um, will be a very interesting opportunity to, to test his thinking. Uh, if you're interested, please do get in touch. Otherwise, um, have a lovely day and goodbye.